0: continue to question anything that the professor says. It's such a better class when you don't have students that are just listening to you know your guidance, which there is a space and place for it, but that they're questioning what you're doing. And I, I know that the professors welcome this in general because it makes the entire class very exciting. You, you talk, you discuss more so than just reading and repeating. So I think that's what I would encourage the students to continue to do, continue to ask all those questions.
1: Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Pisino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus, and I will be your host. Today, we welcome Dr. Katia Passerini as our guest. Dr. Passerini joined Seton Hall on June 5, 2020, as Provost and Executive Vice President. Previously, she was the Leslie H. and William L. Collins Distinguished Chair and Dean at the Collins College of Professional Studies at St. John's University, where she was also a professor. She has experienced teaching in computer science and information systems, as well as knowledge in project management and IT strategy, winning an NJIT Award for Excellence in Innovative Teaching and the Van Houten Alumni Teaching Excellence Award. Furthermore, she has also served as a co-PI for grants funded by the National Science Foundation and does research in understanding macroeconomic drivers of knowledge management, studying wireless broadband applications and industry trends, and computer-supported learning and education. She also co-authored the award-winning book, Information Technology for Small Business, Managing the Digital Enterprise, which discusses how small and medium-sized businesses can leverage today's mobile and as-a-service technology to thrive in today's highly competitive global environments. Dr. Passerini, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um what I think is very very interesting is that he have degrees in political science and economics. So, where does the STEM stuff come in? Yeah,
0: that's that's an
2: excellent question. I would I would argue maybe
0: my economics pathway was uh, was a way towards STEM, but really where STEM really came from was the United States. My prior degrees, political science and, and, and economics, were in my home country, Italy. And uh, when I came to the U.S., and this is, we go back to 1993, it was all about technology. It was all about, you know, the, the information revolution. And I know you don't know this, you were not born yet, but in the year 2000, there was this so-called Y2K problem which was something that every organization around the country was preparing from. So technology was pretty much the center of any business, profit, education, everywhere, operations. So I discovered a passion for technology. I didn't discover it too quickly. I started my MBA in international business because my focus was still on global and international issues. And that's a degree very close to an economics degree. But then a lot of the work that I started doing was connected to using information systems in, or, in organizations. And then I had an opportunity to complete a PhD program in information systems, and I loved it. And I was able to apply some of the things that I was learning across the street from my university, George Washington at the World Bank, working on knowledge management and moderating conferences that were taking place at that time in the South Pacific islands. So embedded in technology and knowledge sharing through technology in times where technology was not what you look at it today. So you have, I'm going to bring you back in time. The way you did email was with a small user interface where you actually had to type similar to MS-DOS. So there was a system called Pine. So a lot of the things that we did back then were without graphical user interface. And, and then finally Mosaic came and that opened a great revolution and I've been in love with technology ever since. Not so much on, on doing it, although I've done my fair share of, of coding of, of systems, but mostly on how technology is used in organization to improve business processes, efficiency and effectiveness.
2: So do you think that you can describe the very moment where you shifted from your degrees in political science and economics to, to, I guess, like information technology, computers, stuff like that? Like, what was the exact moment where you realized? I think my catharsis
0: happened when, and this was my first. My my year before, one year as an international student transitioning in the MBA, I took a class with a wonderful professor, Dr. Mary Granger. She was in the information systems and has been my mentor and a great colleague ever since. I went to her because as I was taking her class, we had an opportunity to do an internship. So I decided to apply to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. They had something that is called the Interactive Technologies Lab. And I think that's when the catharsis happened. I went into that lab, and I saw a lot of computers and, and the multimedia technology, and I remember distinctly that there was a lot of the advance. it was an emerging technology lab, so you could see what the future, some, some of the future looked like, but I remember getting stuck with this one multimedia program that was about the American Civil War, and I remember studying the American Civil War in a book in um, that was about two, 3,000 pages, and it was very, very long, and it barely had some pictures, and it was something that I suffered through, because I wasn't really able to visualize what I was studying, and it, it was so dense, and there was a C- CD-ROM where I could start listening to, viewing videos, listening to voices of people that were reconstructed about the war, and so I realized that learning through technology is a completely different experience, and, and that's what I wanted to focus on. In fact, my dissertation for my doctoral program is actually how do learners learn best with different types of technologies. Do they learn best with a with a textbook, depending on the type of knowledge that you have to learn, or with a video, or in person, comparing what you have to learn with your best suitable tool to, to learning. so. I think it was, I was at the Library of Congress in 1993, I think it was the spring and that's, that's when I realized that there was a, an incredible potential that I needed to, to start exploring.
2: So it's about, I guess, the diversity of how people learn and the accessibility to, that accessibility granted by technology like gave you interest? Yeah. That's cool. very, very interesting. What I also think is very interesting is that you have a very diverse resume. I was looking through while I was gathering information. I thought, wow, that's a that's a completely new thing that I didn't expect that um, would also be there. Yeah, no, I, for me, I just I have to
0: explain that because sometimes, especially when you put your resume together, uh, you know, for your... You know, tenure track position. You have to show your career trajectory as well as your discipline, and what, what what you're studying as a trajectory, and and where you're going as a as a scholar. It's always been very difficult for me to explain my interests and also my growth as a scholar because, as I as I think you're making now as a point, is they've varied tremendously. Fundamentally, I joke that I have attention deficit disorder. Um, I fundamentally like to study topics that are coming up so i I look at emerging things with a lot of interests and what i like is to make connections between the prior topic and the next topic and so i certainly appreciate the depth of knowledge so you have to be really really competent in one field to be able to achieve very long term and significant results but that's not me i like to instead have that what you call the breadth of knowledge i like to to be involved in multiple fields because I believe that exciting things happen at the edges of disciplines. So that's why I've always been kind of jumping from one field to another, but it's a tremendous way of discovering and connecting things, which I find it suitable to my way of learning, And but it
2: might not be suitable to somebody else's way of learning. So in that case, how do you decide what to do next in terms of what you're doing? So, so I have to say that I still
0: don't know what I will do when I grow up. So i um, <laughs> Well, actually, it's both a knowledge connection as well as an emotional connection. So there has to be some basic understanding of what the field is. So I will never go into... Something like uh, neuroscience, well, neuroscience, uh, actually, I find it very interesting, but anything like physics, for example, I don't believe I will be able to do anything in that area just because it's not my background. It's not my knowledge base. But assuming that I have some background, so some good knowledge and uh, understanding of the discipline, if I see an, a potential for growth, that's how I decided I would like to pursue it farther or at least explore it and see what the possibilities are. But I'm always mindful that obviously there has to be that knowledge connection. Otherwise, I will not be able to be effective. I will not understand enough to make you
2: know, any progress moving forward. You use the words breadth of knowledge. How do you how do you stay focused and making sure that what you're doing still connects back to what you want to study?
0: So that's a very good question, because the problem with the breadth of knowledge is, is then focus becomes uh, difficult. And, uh, and I think I have to go back to the prior answer is you have to... Be sure that there is a thread or a common knowledge base. Um, this is actually a concept that uh, Iji Kuro Nonaka, uh, Nonaka and Takeuchi wrote a book that is called The Knowledge Creating Company. And they talk about how knowledge progresses through kind of concentric spirals that become bigger and bigger. So the idea is you have to build on your prior knowledge base to be able to augment what you have. So the connection has to be for the focus is your shared, b- what they call BA. Uh, so your shared space, what you're ready. know and now you link it to the next level and at a certain point of time you have to prioritize so when i said i'm even if i like for example neuroscience i might not be able to get into it because you need to prioritize where you're going to be able to make a difference if you focus enough on a specific domain of growth so focus requires prioritizing and saying you know what you can go up after You kind of have to, it's like if you enter the library, you know, you enter our library and you have so many books. At some point, you have to make that decision where you want to have some variety of knowledge, but you have to focus on a specific aisle that maybe focuses on specific authors. Uh, So, for example, uh, being that I'm Italian, I will mention the Valente uh, Library here at Seaton Hall that I just visited and was impressed by, you know, the different authors that they had there and the opportunity to explore you know, a certain set of books related to Italian history.
2: I, I think I have another question relating to everything that you do. How do you prevent burnout? <laughs> Gosh, that's a very <laughs> difficult question at the times where we're doing
0: COVID, working on a, a forward-looking strategic plan and looking at what the future of higher education might be, given what we learned through this pandemic. And I think the way personally, and I, I'm not, I can't claim I'm always successful because burnout happens, um, especially when you're, when you're doing things under an accelerated schedule. But I think it's that interest that I discover in the things that we're doing. So take take now, for example. It's a very difficult time period because we're learning that the way we have traditionally delivered education is changing dramatically. We expected something and we're learning something else that is happening in the classroom and the way the students are relating to their structure, their classes, how they actually seem to like a hybridity, being in and out or choosing when in which classes to go and which classes to connect face to face. That to me is a signal that higher education might be changing in the future and we have to think about new educational model. So the way I, I kind of try to deal with burnout is finding what's the opportunity that all of this is presenting now to rethink the way we do things and so when i have this forward-looking attitude then i'm excited it's it's like if you think about small business owners right they usually leave their company and they go and open their own business because they feel empowered by the fact that they're doing something new and for themselves without following the corporate agenda this is almost similar right you find always something that excites you And there, like small business owners, you'll be ready to work for 24 hours in a day because you're really excited about what you're doing. So one thing that I'm getting excited about is maybe one day there is a way of rethinking education by completely thinking about a new definition of university. So that keeps me excited on the future and and what we're learning while we're doing all this busy work now.
2: You talked a little bit in your answer about sort of the opportunities the pandemic has given in terms of classes and teaching students can you expand a little bit more on that because i think a lot of people could use some good news in these times about the pandemic uh, yeah yes so
0: i i, I don't uh, i don't pretend to know the answer because we're really observing but i'm hearing a lot from both of the students and the faculty and and one thing that i'm i'm hearing is you know there is a different way of what we we expect it to be a classroom experience and what this classroom experience be, be, becomes when we're dealing with technology um, like we're doing today or where we have students in the classroom and other students remote. So we have this, what we call IFLEX, other call it hybrid, other schools converge learning, whichever name you want to use. But the idea is given that flexibility of coming inside and outside of the classroom in different modality, I think that's, uh, that's interesting. And we expected that this will work only with certain types of students, those who are maybe graduate students. Uh, and we're discovering that also undergraduate students like this type of learning because maybe it might give them an opportunity to be able to manage both a job and, and teaching and, and learning. And so they can in going in and outside of the classroom. So I think that will force us to rethink about how The university works and maybe the university as a place of coming together becomes more a collaboration space where a lot of the learning or listening to podcasts like this one or Vodcast, you can do it on your own before. And when you are in class, it's all about discussion. It's all about getting together. It's all about human to human relations rather than a PowerPoint presentation that you can maybe listen to while i listen to a lot of audiobooks so while you're doing something else you get you get that basic knowledge and then you use the classroom to really benefit from the interactions so i think i don't know if it's uh, we know yet what the future is going to be but we, i think we're going to see a lot of more flexibility in the way we we learn and and we deliver instructions in the
1: future future
2: do you know if this can translate to education that isn't post-secondary, such as high schools, elementary schools, middle schools, do you know if this high flex can be sustained in those schools? So uh, that's a very interesting
0: question. and, And it's also one of the issues that we're seeing in different level of education, from daycare centers to elementary school, middle schools, and high schools, they're all in the same situation. And some are more successful than others. Some schools are deciding to have some experiences at least two days a week or three days a week just to keep the students in that social environment that is might be it's still important i think also the higher education level but it's fundamentally important in elementary school and middle school i mean the way kids learn is by learning From their peers. So a lot of what we are currently struggling with is this this richness of the interactions that happen in the classroom that it's not happening yet. And what we're also missing, I think, is uh, we're not seeing the full picture because we might be fortunate enough that we're seeing situations where technology is accessible and available everywhere. But in fact, there are situations where Technology is not accessible and available, and technology literacy is not as good as the one that we need. Just this morning, I think there was a report in the news that the OECD, the Organization for Economic and Social Development, is doing a study on exactly how learning is happening across the countries. And they had some examples from Europe, but also some examples from Africa. And they described, for example, how some countries in Africa, uh, I think uh, Rwanda was one of the examples that they were looking at, they have decided that they will stay open, especially for the kids that come from rural community, because in those rural communities, they have no access to internet. So they closed everything else to kind of densify capacity and make sure that there are no infections. But certainly, there are some group of students that they need to give priority to. Other countries, for example, like Germany, they are deciding to be open for all students. Other countries are just separating by levels. So, So I think you know, as much as I would like to say this is a model that will continue, we have to be cognizant of the fact that this is not exactly a completely democratic model because not everybody might have the same opportunity
2: or access that we have. That's a very interesting take on the on this whole subject. I believe that I and several of our listeners can probably relate to having your hands in so many different projects. Do you ever get overwhelmed by it? And how do you deal with that? Oh, gosh. <laughs>
0: All the time. I have a wonderful team that right now is struggling and uh, because I, I have a lot of projects uh, going on. So they become really the the unfortunate soldier that helped me uh, deal with so many projects. So it, it is this is a serious issue. We, we need to pace ourselves. Uh, but the problem is during a crisis, it's a little difficult to, to say, how are you going to pace yourself? And, and what are you going to prioritize? Sometimes you need to, to learn how to do more things with the same amount of time and resources. And so I think one one thing that I really hope, going back to my passion for technology and information systems, I think we have to be a little bit more mindful of what type of uh, processes and procedures we can use information systems or technology to help us with, so that we can do more of the very important work that requires uh, the human interactions and less of the work that can be automated with some type of better tools or technology so right now overwhelming i think it's it's a it's the way of being Uh, i think to avoid burnout we have to make sure that we stop think and then start start again so i think uh, we don't have the luxury of taking vacation but for example the weekend for me it's 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 a time where we recuperate. So even on that one day a week, or even within the office, we have created a rotation schedule that there is that one day a week where we we will work from home. That kind of helps you recharge and and move forward. What has been the most rewarding experience in your career so far? Oh, wow. I've been blessed. I think that there have been many one that I really remember, you mentioned in the introduction this thing called the Van Auden Alumni Award. Mm-hmm. I always remember that uh, because of how unexpected it was. I, I remember it was just the, right before Christmas, before you have to enter final grades for the students. And I remember it was, I was there and providing all this feedback and writing you know, very accurate notes. I wanted the students to know why. You know, I was giving feedback, X, Y, this grade. And all of a sudden, I realized that the whole day had gone by. It was dark outside. And I was like, I was asking myself, why do I spend all this time providing all of this feedback because I have seen studies that say that the students especially in their final grades they really don't read the comments they really look at their final grade first and then it's gone so everything else is noise so they're not in a learning mode anymore they finish the class and it's done so the formative feedback had to be given before during the class and not just at the end and I remember as I was thinking that I received a call and the call was from the president of the alumni association at the university I was then, NJIT. And and she was telling me that I was awarded this teaching award. that, And the way that this teaching award is awarded is they survey the students that in the last five alumni of the last five years and they ask uh, which professor has, has made a difference in your life. And at that moment, I was like, for me, it was like, oh my gosh, that's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm all day here. Because sometimes when you teach, you know, your rewards are delayed. You don't know the impact that you're making. But at that moment, I realized that I was making an impact. And I realized, I mean, if I think about my professors and who I learned from, I mentioned before, my mentors really changed my life and my way of thinking. Sometimes we don't know that, but I think each one of us is making a difference in a student life. Sometimes uh, not so positive, but most of the times I think we do. And so regardless of whether you hear it or not, it was phenomenal for me to hear it that day. But, but I think that's really one of the reasons why I love being in education and, and having been being a professor and now working with the faculty at a university.
2: So then what is, if, if you wanted your students to take one thing from your teachings, what would it be? I
0: think continue to question anything that the professor says. And it's challenging because I remember all the students that put me on the spot, but I have to say it's such a better class when you don't have students that are just listening to your guidance, which there is a space and place for it, but that they're questioning what you're doing. And today it's so easy because whatever you say, you know, a student in a class with a laptop can Google and come up with another question or challenge it. And I think that's phenomenal. That has made us, our classroom experience much more interactive. So I, I know that the, the professors welcome this in general, because it makes the entire class very, uh, very exciting. I mean, you you just become, you know, a critical review, almost the Socratic method That you know, uh, you, you talk, you discuss more so than than just reading and repeating um, some of the uh, of the material that you have to study. So I think that's, uh, that's what I would uh, encourage the students to continue to do, continue to ask all those questions.
2: So what does that look like in sort of those STEM fields? Because a lot of people can relate to having that debate in, say, their English or history classes, where there's a lot of viewpoints but there's not there's not really a viewpoint in math or science it just is what it is what does it so what does having what does being challenged by your students look like in these fields
0: well, again it depends on the field that you're teaching but um i'll give you an example in information systems one thing that you have to do before you build the system is map the system see how pieces of information interrelate from each other where they're coming from so what's your input the processing the output Building those maps, it's not easy. It's not mechanical. And actually questioning whether that map is the best possible map is is a very exciting exercise because there might be other ways and other processes. It's called process reengineering, where you could get to the same result in a completely different way. You just have to think about a different way of doing things. So I think that's that's true in, in many disciplines. So you just have to find in that specific discipline, where is it that you can question the basics. Of course, you know, if you're studying a theorem or a law, there isn't really much that you can do or change that theorem. So you have to establish that knowledge base first and learn that to be able to have the broader questions. But every discipline will have uh, will have their moment of challenge and understanding. What you need to do though is go to class prepared in advance because to ask the task the tough question obviously you need to have done your reading before the class starts.
2: So you are, you're a woman in STEM, and I guess a lot of our listeners probably know sort of the hardships that can come with that. Have you in particular experienced any of those hardships that being a woman in STEM comes with?
0: To some extent, yes. I, I remember my, so I took a break between my doctoral program before coming to academia. I went to, to work in management consulting and being from, from IT, I worked in, in many IT organizations and divisions with the cio so it was very interesting to be the only (laughs) woman in some of those meetings because a lot of the people in those meetings were either coder or or um, i worked in the auto industry so there were engineers working on designing engines and etc i have to say though i've never seen it as a limitation because as long as you have your area of competence and you're competent in what you are demonstrating People will value and respect you. So my role in, in a lot of those teams uh, was really to organize or, or project manage what they had to deliver, work in understanding requirements of systems, and making sure that they were required delivering the requirements of the systems. So it takes a little bit to establish that comfort zone, but if you add value to the team you're working with, I think it's you know it's easy to get that uh, level of comfort and and buy in. I have to say, and especially I would like to encourage anyone who's thinking about continuing in in STEM, is it's also an opportunity to some extent that because we're still at a level where we need more diversity, there are a lot of funding opportunities, there are a lot of things that you can do that being a woman or being an underrepresented minority might give you access to, that might not be available to others. So. Going back to, to how I started uh, you know, with my PhD, it, w- it was very easy for me to find funding for anything that I was doing, and even in terms of research, just because I had that differentiating fa- factor. So I want to say that uh,
2: diversity for me has been more an
0: opportunity than an, an obstacle.
2: So to those that want to go into this field, what advice do you have for them, whether they are a minority or just someone that is interested in this?
0: I would suggest you have to have a very deep curiosity and continuous to learn because this this field, I think it's very rewarding, but it has a curse. <laughs> it's, you have to continuously relearn what you're doing because it evolves. The pace of technology evolution is exponential. Everything evolves, but there are some disciplines that are more anchored and more stable than than others. So if you're ready to do that, and if you like continuous learning, which is something that I... In a, that I enjoy. I think you you should consider pursuing a career in technology. One trick, when you're young, I don't think you have to put any constraint, but at some point you'll have other obligations. Uh, It it will not be so easy to continue to learn at the speed and rate when, when you do when you are beginning your career. So what I think you need to do is to find an anchor that is a little bit more stable. So for me, for example, that anchor was project management. While IT changes continuously, managing project and processes, that's a body of knowledge that existed for the last, you know, starting in the 1950s with the big infrastructure projects, and it's still the same. I mean, we haven't really changed the methodology. Maybe we talk about agile project management today, Scrum, and typical methodologies, but fundamentally, it's the same knowledge base. So that, I think, is an important anchor because you will not be able to always continue at the pace that that technology brings to you. Um, and so you just have to be aware of that. But there are ways of,
2: of addressing that and dealing with that. So we're sort of nearing the end of our time. I do have one last question for you. What thought leaders do you follow in social media or the news, or do you read up on?
0: Yeah, so I, I mentioned a couple of times before neuroscience. I, I tend to listen, right now I'm listening to this audiobook book uh, from David Rock, who is an author that has done a lot of research on brain plasticity, and now we can change our way of thinking by just refocusing what we do or paying attention to different visual clues. Um, so he's is kind of put neuroscience into leadership. So David Rock, what he's done, is taken scientific principle and applied them to management. So I kind of love this type of in- interaction between management and neuroscience. So anything connected to that I'm an avid listener not only because it makes sense but also I became interested in neuroscience for for a very personal experience you know my mom was was hit by a car and she had to relearn new things and so I was able to observe or study a little bit because I wanted to learn how my mom was going to to relearn you know how the brain works and it's so fascinating so so anything that is neuroscience
2: I'm there (laughs) so (laughs) I'm listening to it Yeah. so I believe that concludes our interview for today thank you once again for contributing to the podcast and thank you for all that you've done welcome to Seton Hall thank you thank you (laughs) and thank you for
1: having me on behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at shu leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.